welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Well, uh, we return to the Gospel of Luke uh, in our verse-by-verse study of it, and we now uh, begin to open chapter 22, the chapters that move through what is commonly known as the Passion of the Christ, Passion Week, and particularly the last three days uh, heading up to the cross work of our Lord. And so let us together hear the Word of God, Luke writing, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. This is God's holy word. May the true story of the greatness of Christ and his victory even over the deepest wickedness be heard today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, as we make a shift in the gospel from the final public teaching ministry of Jesus to uh, the last days of Passion Week, we move into a part of his life which is the greatest focus of all four of the gospels. J.C. Ryle, the the great... uh, Bible teacher of uh, the past, whom I admire so much, in his commentary wrote this, the chapter which opens with these verses begins Luke's account of our Lord's sufferings and death. No part of the Gospels is so important as this one. The death of Christ was the life of the world. No part of our Lord's history is so fully given by all the gospel writers as this. He points out something interesting. Only two of the gospel writers describe the circumstances of Christ's birth with any detail. Can you remember who they are? Luke and Matthew. But all four of the gospel writers dwell minutely on the death of Christ. You look at your gospels sometime and you'll see how right he is. All four of the gospels spend chapters on the final days and the passion, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All four dwell minutely on Christ's death, he writes. And of all the four, no one supplies us with such full and interesting details as does Luke. So it's going to be a a deepening journey through the final days of the Lord Jesus Christ. These days are going to be characterized by two things. One is the approaching devotion of Jesus to die for his people. The approaching devotion of Jesus to suffer and die for the lost. It's a magnificent story. And it rises in its majesty all the way to the final moment when Jesus cries out, it is finished. But along with it, you see another story, and it's the story of rising wickedness. The story of escalating evil. This is the time when the hour of the enemy is at its highest point in human history. Indeed, when Jesus was taken in the garden by the mob... At the betrayal of Judas, he looked upon them and he said, this is indeed your hour. This is the hour of darkness. So long with the approaching devotion of Christ, these are chapters that will cover the rising wickedness of the enemy and of lost men and women to, to, uh, to rise in opposition to Jesus and all that he would do. Just as Jesus said, this is the hour of darkness, and it ran its full course. 
But don't forget that he also said to his disciples in John 12, at the same time, he said, this is my hour. He says, finally, my hour has come. His hour was greater than the hour of darkness, but they battled together. And Jesus in John 17, 1 would tell the Father in the final night of prayer on, on, the, on the slopes of, of the Garden of, of, of the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane, he would say, Father, now the hour has come. Glorify your Son. God was on the move. The enemy was rising, but God was over it all. So you see this in these chapters that we're going to study, this approaching devotion to the great work of the cross and this rise of wickedness. And that's always the way it will be whenever God is at work in saving power, the wickedness of the enemy rises to meet that. And there is a spiritual conflict over the work of the cross, whether it's in the world at large or whether it's in the battle over the heart of someone you know who is seeking to come to Christ. And so you're always going to have approaching devotion and rising wickedness, and it's going to be that way until death is swallowed up in victory and Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords once again. And so that's the battle that we see here. This night in Luke 22 and this terrible event of the betrayal of Jesus, which begins here and then finds its great closure in the Garden of Gethsemane just a night later, I believe this is Wednesday night, by the way, in the Gospel Week. Some people differ, but we, we don't know exactly, but our best guess is that this is Wednesday night. Christ's teaching ministry is finalized, and he's now spending time with his disciples on the slope of the Mount of Olives that night. And this is happening in Jerusalem itself as, as that night unfolds. And then the next night will be the, the night of that begins the the, the dual dimensions of Passover where Jesus meets in the upper room with his men, washes their feet, gives them final instruction, and then they move down to the Mount, to the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane follows. So this is all tightly approaching the, the, the final days of Jesus. But this particular experience of the betrayal of Jesus happening that night in a room where the chief priests were gathered and Judas comes, may well have been history's most wicked hour. There have been a lot of them. But due to the way this is put together in Scripture, this may well have been history's most wicked hour. And there's lessons for us to learn here. There are lessons to learn in this narrative about the ways of wicked man, just how one individual, an everyday sinner like Judas, could plunge to the depths that he did. There's lessons about the wicked one, Satan himself, who works behind the scenes and then indwells the chief player, how that could happen and how horrifying a prospect that is, but how he works. But then make no mistake, there are lessons to learn here about our overruling God and his sovereignty over all of this. Wickedness may rise, but he is the victor. All of that is here. And so maybe you'll learn today, this morning, how to praise him because he gets to his cross and his great work is accomplished. If you know him as Savior, this, this battle was victoriously won for you. Or maybe you're suffering at the hands of Wickedness right now in your life for righteousness sake. Oh, there's some encouragement here for you too. So let's move into it together. As I studied it, I saw four things that I want to bring to your attention. There is a plot that is building among the enemies of Jesus. This night, the players also gather and they put it into detail and they, they, they join their wicked hearts. Then a plan is put into place to bring the plot to fulfillment. But over it all, there is a great promise in the scripture that God is in control of it all. So let's take a look at this story, this brief narrative in those four ways. First of all, let's take a look at the plot that deepens. And this is the first part here where we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover Arriving, verse 1, and the chief priests and the scribes seeking how to put Jesus to death. There's the plot, and uh, we're going to talk about it. 
Let me just talk about three things under this. First of all, Luke is very clear about the timing of all this. He talks about this. He writes mostly to a non-Jewish audience, to a Roman, Greco-Roman audience, people not too familiar with the times of the Jewish calendar. And so he points out that this was all happening during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. What was that all about? Well, Jeff Thomas, a Bible commentator and teacher, in his work on this, uh, talks about what that time was like. I've I've drawn from his work to, to speak to you today. Passover was the holiest time of the year, he notes. It was the greatest of all the multiple feasts of the Jews. And uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was also called the Passover. During this time, hundreds of thousands of people would journey toward Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover there. Passover remembered something that had happened 1,400 years before this, and it was during the time when Israel was really not even Israel at that point. It was the Jewish people, but they were in bondage to another nation, the nation of Egypt. You remember the story. Pharaoh was executing his rule over them. They were held in bondage. Moses is called to to lead the people of Israel out of that bondage, and he confronts Pharaoh. You remember the story in Genesis and in Exodus. And Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go, and then God brings plague after plague upon Egypt. You remember that story. The final plague was a plague in which the firstborn of every family in in the house of Egypt, rich or poor, would die that night. And God came to tell Moses, listen, you tell all my people to slay a lamb. And take the blood of that lamb and spread it on the doorposts of their homes and stay inside. And as the death angel moves through this region, he will pass over your your people, pass over their houses when he sees the blood and he will not take the firstborn. And that's exactly what happened. All the firstborn of Egypt died that night. None of the firstborn of Israel did. And so it was a great miracle and a great deliverance. And of course, they left and and went out on their own and they were liberated from Egypt and went into the promised land and and all the, the great work of God continued for Israel. Passover was instituted by God to help them celebrate that great event. And it was the greatest of their feasts. The whole nation was supposed to gather and praise the greatness of God as a redeemer, a deliverer one who takes you out of bondage. It was symbolic of him one day through the sacrifice of the ultimate lamb, taking them out of the bondage of their sin, out of darkness and into light. So that was what Passover was all about, and hundreds of thousands were gathering there. What had been happening in the ministry of Jesus? Well, Thomas notes that Jesus was now spending his nights on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. He wasn't staying in the city he, he, that week he had spent his nights on the Mount of Olives seeking God's help and strength for the labors of the day ahead and for the attacks of his enemies that would come every day. And for the first three days of that week after he had triumphantly entered the city, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, he had been spending his night on the Mount of Olives and then going down and teaching the people in the temple area. And the people had flocked to him. Every morning, different people in the city would wake up. They'd set aside their normal plans for the day. They'd wash, they'd have a bite to eat, and then they'd hurry off down into downtown Jerusalem to what was called Solomon's Portico. And they would gather in that huge area by the thousands and they would come to hear Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, once again teach. And that happened each day early that week. They wanted to get there at the break of dawn to be able to get close enough to hear his words and to be thrilled by what he said. In fact, in Luke chapter 21, just as the chapter ends, we know that it says in verse 38, early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So that had been going on for three days. Thomas writes this, there was not a man or woman in Jerusalem who did not by then not know personally some people or know about some people whose lives had been affected by Jesus of Nazareth. They all had acquaintances and some had family members whose lives had been transformed by him. They'd been perhaps seriously ill and Jesus had completely healed them. 
They had all listened as he had preached his sermons on the hillsides or in the temple. And his parables were quoted at every city gate and village well. His words were living in the minds of the people. It was while this great awakening ministry was going on and thousands of people were being touched by Jesus' preaching that these sinful men that we see in this passage, the chief priests, were plotting to get rid of Christ. They knew by heart the words of the scripture, these priests did. And they knew all about the temple rituals and sacrifices, but they knew nothing of the beauty of the Son of God who had come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. He was in their midst. He was preaching the same messages in their hearing. Their hearts were hardened even as the people were stirred. It was this this contrast again between the work of God's grace and the rise of wickedness. He says, in all of this, they ignored the one who had come to give his life for the world. They were coming together as as conspirators to take his life away from him. These wicked men had a religion they would kill for. Jesus had a gospel he would die for. The point is this, he writes, that whenever there is a great work of God that centers on our Lord and thousands are touched by it, then you can guarantee there'll be furious opposition to it and plotting against the gospel of Jesus Christ, end of quote. In other words, wherever there is a rising swell of God's grace coming, there's going to be a wave of opposition rising to meet it. That's what was going on. And Jesus knew it, and he preached and lived into the teeth of it. What a marvelous Savior. William Barclay, the uh, Bible historian and commentator, said that Passover was the, 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 the one uh, fe- festival that every Jew who, who was uh, of age and who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem had to go to every year. But beyond that, all faithful Jews, whether they were in Judea, in Israel proper, or whether they were some other place on the planet, wanted to come to Jerusalem if they could. And that's still the way it is today, of course. Faithful people of the Jewish faith, want to, they keep the Passover every year wherever they are, whether it's in New Delhi or New York, but they all have a saying saying, oh, perhaps next year in Jerusalem. All people of the Jewish faith desire to to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem if they can be there. And so the, the numbers that did go to Jerusalem that year were huge. Jerusalem was normally about 200,000 people in population. And the, the numbers swelled significantly. There was a census taken by an emperor or a governor named Cestius during the time of Nero And uh, Nero didn't believe Judaism had much influence. Well, Cestius took a census to prove him wrong. Cestius counted the number of lambs that were slain at one particular Passover in one particular year. Josephus, the Jewish historian, repeats this. The number of lambs that was slain was 256,000. That's just the sacrificial lambs that were slain in the temple precinct that week. Now, Jewish law said that... uh, uh, the, the minimum number of people uh, who were, were, would celebrate a Passover celebration was 10. In other words, you could take one lamb and use that sacrifice lamb for 10 people. So you do the math. 250,000 50, times 10 means that there could have been more than 2.5 million Jewish pilgrims in and around Jerusalem that week. Massive numbers. Now, in a city crowded like that, this is when the drama of the last days of Jesus was played out. It was a full anticipating kind of environment, but it was also a time when there could have been a lot of trouble because there was not tremendous satisfaction of the Jews with the Roman occupation. That's why both Herod and Pilate came from the coast where they had their luxurious palaces, and during the week of Passover, they came and stayed in Jerusalem with their security forces to make sure that they made a show of force so that all would be well. You see how God ordained everything? Only Pilate could have authorized the crucifixion of Jesus. God moves Pilate 80 miles inland to Jerusalem for the day that God had chosen. It's fascinating. Now, Barclay writes that 250,000 little lambs with their throats cut in the temple area over a week of time 
it would, pardon me for the graphic nature of this, but it does make an important point. Barclay writes, where did all the thousands of gallons of blood from these slain lambs go? How did they get rid of it? The answer is there was a drainage system at the base of the altar in the temple, a massive altar, and the Jews would line up with their sacrificial lambs and the priests would take their sacrifice and cut the throat of the lamb and the blood was spilled and then thrown at the base of the altar and the rest of the blood drained into this drainage system. Barclay writes there were these drains were, were designed at the foot of the altar and then huge amounts of water were then poured into the altar's drainage system to flush the blood down. The temple mount was, was, of course, elevated, and these drains emptied the blood into the brook Kidron in the Kidron Valley. Why is that familiar? Because that's the valley that separated Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane. Dr. Barclay writes, the drains emptied the blood into the brook Kidron and the Kidron Valley that was below the temple. Normally, this valley was dry throughout the year, but with the spring rains that came at Passover, the valley was turned into a flowing brook of water that would become a crimson stream as the blood of the lambs flowed into the water. From, from that altar to the brook Kidron. And he says, when Jesus crossed the brook Kidron, the next night, after the upper room, after telling his disciples he was on his way to die for them, the brook could roam would still have been red with the blood of the lambs which had been sacrificed. If he's right, the Lord Jesus in his sandaled feet stepped over the crimson flood on his way to being betrayed, on his way to the suffering that would happen the very next night. The Lord Jesus entered into his great sacrifice for you and I with great boldness and bravery, didn't he? He loves you that much. Do you know him? More about that in a minute. So there's a plot that's deepening. You have to know a little bit about the times. Secondly, you have to know a little bit about the plot itself. It says that the chief, chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. And then we know that this was something that had been their goal for some time. They'd had it with Christ. He was exposing their sin and breaking down their false teaching. And the people were moving toward Jesus. And for some weeks now, this had been brewing as Christ's teaching wounded them and exposed them and Christ's popularity grew. We know that this was going on in their minds that week particularly because Matthew 26 says this in verses 1 to 4. Jesus finished his teaching. This is also in that, in that final week. And he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So this is, this is Matthew's rendering of what was going on at the same time as Luke's. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so their plot had been going on for weeks, but they were afraid of the, the, the people's reaction. But nonetheless, look what it says here. They wanted to arrest Jesus by stealth secretly and then kill him. It's possible that they were not even thinking of going through with the trial and executing him legally. The Greek words kill here simply talk about killing somebody. So it's possible that they might have just wanted to murder him secretly and get him out of the way. We don't know. But that was their plot. And yet there was a third dimension to understand, and that was that there was a problem. The problem was not their guilt. This is, you know, you would think so, wouldn't you? How can you for months be filled with wicked anger against someone and plot their murder and not have a twinge of guilt? Well, you, you should have met these guys. Religiously blinded, supernaturally proud. No, the problem wasn't with guilt or a, a twinge of conscience. The problem was with the people and what the people would think. It was a political problem. Matthew says in verse 5, but they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they wanted to somehow get to Jesus privately 
and take him out of the public eye and then silently kill him after the feast was over. The last thing they wanted to do was for the people to see them taking Jesus and create a riot that would make them into a problem, put them into a problem with the Roman authorities because Caesar, Caesar hated riots, but also it would make Jesus even more popular among the people. They might lose control of the whole thing politically. So their problem was the people. Jesus had triumphantly entered the city three days before. Hundreds of thousands had crowded the way, calling him Messiah. Now they were hanging on his words, according to Luke 21. So they had to do this quietly. Now to do that, they had to find Jesus alone or away from the crowds and just with a few of his disciples whom they could overpower. Now, this would probably, they realized, have to happen at night. Jesus taught all during the day. The crowds found him during the day. And only at night did he slip over into the Mount of Olives and the crowds couldn't follow him there. They had to find him alone. It had to be at night. But here they are in Matthew's description and Luke's description, gathered, plotting and trying to figure out how to do this. And then, satanically but sovereignly, as you look at Luke 22, satanically and sovereignly, the answer came knocking at the door. Their plot needs a player. And the player shows up. His name is Judas. Some Bible scholars believe that that. They were in that meeting in Matthew 26, plotting and saying, we've got to get him at night. We've got to get him alone or nearly alone. How are we going to do it? We we almost need an in. And as they're talking, Judas is knocking. Could have been. Let's go to the next state and the mention in the narrative from the plot deepening to the players gathering. This is, as you look at your text here, this is verses three and four. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. He walked in as their answer. Now, to understand the drama as it plays out, you understand, you need to understand the players that were satanically gathered here. There's three. The first is a non-human entity, Satan, because Satan leads the narrative. Before all of this happened, Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Satan was the one who turned the, the, the main gear in this mechanism of wickedness. He he moves it all forward by possessing and indwelling Judas. Then Satan entered into Judas. That is a chilling sentence. This was the devil's hour, and the devil found a man who would let him in. This is not just demon possession. This is not just supernatural influence. It's not just, he wasn't just demon-possessed. He was Satan-possessed. If you can imagine the multiples of difference that could mean. Possessed by the most evil and powerful created being in the universe. I don't know how to put a description to that. How in the world did that happen? Well, we know that Jesus, Judas was never a believer. That's indicated by the fact that when Jesus talked about the disciples in John 13, and he was talking to them about their spiritual life, he says, you are clean, but not all of you. In fact, he said in John chapter 6, as he called forth the apostles, he says, oh, but one of you is a devil. Do you realize Judas is the only person in the Bible ever called the, the devil, ever given the same, the same title? It's not even the Antichrist was called that. And later he's called by Jesus on at least one occasion the son of perdition, which means destruction. In other words, an unbelieving heart destined for hell 
never willing to turn to Christ. So the field was open. The field was open. Satan moves into this life and controls him. Now, there's a question that comes about when Bible students look at this passage. And it's a question that I can't answer, but I can give you theories. Maybe you've asked this question. The question is this, why would Satan empower a plan that would get Jesus to the cross when we know that Satan didn't want Jesus to get to the cross? Has that ever occurred to you? Did Satan really want Jesus to die for your sin? No. We know that from the very beginning of Christ's life, Satan organized plans through wicked men to kill Christ. The first happened when Christ was less than two years old. And Herod, having heard about the birth of great Jesus, this is an earlier King Herod, sent his troops to sweep through every town where Jesus could have been born and to slay every child two years old and under. You remember that? That was a murder plot, murder plot against the king, the true Jesus. There were many times in the ministry of Christ when murder attempts were, were laid against him by these priests or just in general, and, and Jesus walked through the crowd and everybody was kind of in this suspended animation. Remember some of the gospel stories? He walked through the crowd because his hour had not yet come. Satan bringing Christ and, and facing him in the wilderness, seeking to tempt him into sin. If he had succeeded there, Christ would have failed in sin and then failed to be a perfect sacrifice, and Christ's cross work would never have happened. So Satan was against Christ. He was his adversary all the way through. He even tried to turn him through the apostle Peter. When Jesus said, oh, in a few days I'll be going to a cross, but I will rise. And what did Peter say? Say, Lord, this shall not be for you. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Was Peter possessed and indwelt? No, but he was certainly influenced. And what was he doing at that point? He was talking like the devil talks. Of course, Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. And so now we have this dilemma. Why would he then enter Judas and move this plan forward? Now, I'm going to tell you that we really don't clearly know. Bible teachers have been left to theorize there are a few theories. One is that Satan was spiritually senseless, and you know, wickedness is unwise. Wickedness is corrupt in itself, and it often ruins its own plans. But some teachers believe that he was senseless in this moment. He just didn't know or realize what would really happen if Jesus got to the cross, and he just hated Jesus and wanted to kill him because he has the spirit of murder in himself. But it seems to me that the scriptures, as I just described to you, seem to contradict that. No, he didn't want him to get there, at least initially. Others believe in the idea that Satan was simply Satan as the sadist. He was not just, he was not senseless, but he's a sadist. He's a bloodthirsty murderer, and he simply couldn't help himself. While he knew that the crucifixion would open up heaven for humanity, he simply couldn't resist torturing and killing the Son of God. But again, the weight of Scripture and how he had opposed it through his career seemed to lessen that for me. And some believe that Satan was the Caesar of, of life in the sense that he actually believed that he could let Jesus die, but since Hebrews 2.14 says that he was convinced that he had the keys of death and hell, that he could somehow, when Jesus got into the tomb, he somehow had the power to keep him there. Remember, evil is self-deceiving. So what, what could it be? And I don't know. I, I've gone back and forth with a number of these theories in my teaching career, but I'm more settled on the idea that kind of combines the second and the third, that he is a sadist in heart, but he's proud of it, has an overestimation of his power by nature. And my basic theory is, is he thought that he would make the way to the cross so hellish and painful that even the Son of Man could not and would not fully endure it and that Jesus would fail along the way. Jesus would step out of the pain, 
out of the agony, and he wouldn't fulfill his death on the cross. I joined Dr. John MacArthur and others with this particular point of view. It's true that, that this was the hour of wickedness. Jesus said, this is your hour, the hour of darkness, he, he told Judas and the followers of the priests. And so this was the time when the full arsenal of hell was unleashed against Jesus. It was the most wicked period of time in history. All the hosts of hell were rising and all the deceived men and women that could be gathered were there from Pilate to the paupers. It didn't matter. And the devil may have thought he was going to press him with every human instrument and every demonic power and tempt and press Jesus so much that he would eventually break down and decide to avoid the horror of the cross. It might happen in Gethsemane, where, as one author has said, Jesus would have said, Father, let this cup pass from me, and he never would have completed the sentence, not, but not my will, but thine be done. Perhaps that's what the devil really thought. Or it could have progressed somewhere in the later agonies of Jesus. He might have been thinking this way, Satan, that night. I'm going to enter Judas and I'm going to start a plan in motion that will be so vicious and so painful and so filled with spiritual horror that I will wear out this son of man. And he will turn away and in the final hour he won't go through with it. Surely if I, if I unleash the deepest pain of human betrayal when I indwell this Judas, surely that will wound the soul of the Son of Man. Surely when I stir his other disciples to abandon him and run from him, surely that will wound his soul. I will take him to the physical and emotional depths of hell itself in Gethsemane. I'll bleed him dry emotionally. Surely he'll break there. And if he doesn't break there, I'll let him hear Peter's denials in the courtyard as he's about to be tried and the betrayal will deepen. Maybe he'll break there. I'll walk him through unjust and sham trials filled with lies this king of kings. He won't put up with that. Maybe he'll break in the trial rooms or I'll let the lash fall and the bone cut and the muscles quiver under the, the floggings. Maybe he'll shake it off there and say, I've had enough. Or if he makes it all the way to the cross, I'll gather all my servants and they'll mock him incessantly and maybe the son of God the pure and righteous and holy one will say it's enough or maybe he'll make it all the way to the moment when the sky starts to darken and he knows that there is the looming abandonment of him from the fellowship of his father oh that will do it and he'll cry out in, 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 in righteous anger on that cross. Enough! Wrench himself free. Decimate his enemies on the hillside. And I'll still have it all. I wonder if Satan didn't believe that he could get Jesus Christ at some point to say, Enough! But that didn't happen, did it? No, instead, in the darkest hour, when the darkness fell and the abandonment came, and Jesus was abandoned by the Father, and the full wrath of the Father fell on him for three dark, horrendous hours, hell came upon him and poured its wrath out until it was exhausted. What did Satan hear instead? He didn't hear the words, enough. He heard, it is finished. And the Lord of hell and all those that had gathered around him to defeat Jesus said, what? No. And the next thing they know, Jesus 
whose body is in the tomb, is preaching the victory of his cross work to the demons below and saying, as the clock ticks three days from now, I rise to defeat you all. That's the whole story. Those are the chapters that Satan wanted to write, but my God always writes the last page. Amen? He does. Well, this was the the mind of the tormenting enemy. Boy, we've really got to run now. What other players gather? Well, there was Judas, of course. Go back to your text. and He became indwelt, and then he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers. He went and knocked on that door. It's just it's always been jolting to me that he was possessed by the most concentrated evil in the universe, and yet he went about his sin in the most casual way. He just put this together and he went and knocked on that door and it seemed completely logical to him. Jesus had failed him. Jesus had promised to be the great earthly Messiah. He'd promised to set up the kingdom even that week and Judas had argued with the other disciples for months about whether he would be sitting at Jesus' right hand. He would have power in Israel. He'd have wealth in Israel. And all these promises were now being turned over because Jesus said, I'm not going to take the kingdom yet. I'm going to go to a cross first. And Judas says, I have no room in my mind for crosses. They're worthless. They don't get you anything in the here and now. And so Judas convinced that Jesus was a deluded false Messiah, says, I'm we need to get him out of the way. He's an embarrassment to me, but maybe I can make a little money on the deal and recoup some of my losses because his driving sin was greed. We know that. But it was also casual. People think, well, Judas must have been a deeply evil person to begin with. He might, maybe he was the most supernaturally evil person, human being on the planet. No. He was simply a person who opened the door of his life to the influence of the enemy. He was a normal person and dwelt by supernormal evil. And it's amazing to me that none of this was obvious, but it wasn't. When he knocked on the door that night, those chief priests didn't know they were looking at Satan incarnate. They were just looking at a guy that wanted to make a deal. Later, when Judas returned and he, he rejoined the disciples with his secret kept and and his money bag was full with 30 pieces of silver, which he carried into the upper room that night. They didn't know that they were sitting in the presence of supernatural evil. Thomas might have asked him, hey, during, during their last meal, pass the olive oil. Because he was completely human in the midst of his supernormal evil. I just, people ask, you know, why was Judas picked out? Was he unusually evil? No, I think anybody would have done. And that's the great and frightening thing about opening the door of your life to a hatred of God. The last group of players were the priests. We've already learned a lot about them. I can simply say they were confirmed in their evil. They walked over the line that night and consigned themselves to hell. Quickly now to the third. The players had gathered, and now a plan is set. This is verses 5 and 6. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. That puts a chill through you. I think about that. They were glad. What? My Greek lexicon says the word glad there in Greek means they entered into a state of happiness and well-being. (sighs) Murder made them enter into a state of happiness and well-being. It just sort of sent a chill through you. That's how deceived people can be, especially about Jesus. There's something in the fallen human heart that makes one delight in opposing and destroying Jesus. It was part of my life when I was an angry skeptic. It could be part of your life if you're without Christ. These were everyday people. 
I mean, you think about it. They were happy. It's possible that the chief priest might have gone home after the meeting that night and his wife said, well, how was your day? She noticed that he was a little brighter in his face and he wasn't walking with hunched shoulders and kind of a storm in his eyes because he'd been worried about this and battling with this for months. And she said, you seem unusually happy. What's going on? And he might have said, it looks like we're finally going to get rid of that troublemaker. Jesus, what a relief. And his wife might have joined him and said, that's great. You know, let's go out to dinner. Celebrate. The Caiaphases have wanted to get together with us. Let's try that new place in the plaza. You chuckle, but that's how deceiving sin is. And there, but for the grace of God, could go you if you don't know Jesus Christ. That's how far you can fall. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, said, no doubt the chief priests looked on the treachery of Judas as a veritable dispensation of providence amply justifying their plots against Jesus. That's 1800s language for what we today call a God thing. That's how religious and lost they could be at the same time. They might have thought this was all a God thing. Wow. Well, Judas consented to their plan and And it was all an emotion. Now, right now, you may be tasting and sensing a a sense of overwhelming awareness of just how deceitful and powerful the enemy is. And listen, human sin can be. And if you are, I want you to taste that, but I don't want you to swallow it because there's a fourth thing, and with it I close. Yes, there was a plot that had and brewing. Yes, there were players that gathered under supernatural wickedness. Yes, there was a plan that went forward and succeeded, but there is a promise over it all that God was in control. Our mighty Lord superintended their hands and their minds to accomplish the greatest act in history, redemption. You see, Jesus had promised something sometime before. In John chapter 10, I believe, Jesus had said in in the Gospel of John, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again, predicting his sacrificial death for sinners and his resurrection. Verse 18, No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. No plot, no planners, no supernaturally indwelt wicked one, no devil. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. I'm God to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. In other words, God the Father and God the Son agreed to a great plan of salvation, and God the Father said, Son, you're going to go to a cross for my people. You're going to die in that place through that passion, and you're going to die exactly on time. And you and I will walk in that great plan together, the greatest plan of love the planet's ever known, and nothing will stop us. In fact, we'll use the very ones who want to stop us to move it forward. Because we have the authority. This is why Jesus prayed that night in John 17. After the betrayal, after it all was all in motion, after Judas was, was, was gathering the, the, the officers to take Jesus, Jesus prayed and said, Father, now the hour has come. Glorify thy name in me. This is why Peter, in the book of Acts, summed it all up some months later now as he preached to some of the very people who'd been in the courtyard saying, crucify him. Now they're saved. And in Acts 2.23, he says to the men and women of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice, they were responsible for crucifying him. They were lawless. But God did this all by a perfectly designed 
definite plan that he foreknew from eternity. Wow. You see, in my opinion, that predetermined plan ran down to the very hour that Jesus spoke of. They didn't want him to die until after the feast. They wanted to do this secretly, keep it out of the public eye, and then things got away from them, and they went ahead and used Pilate anyway, and Jesus died. But their original plan was to avoid it all and do it all secretly. Oh, no, Christ was going to die publicly. That was the plan of God. And he was going to die at a certain hour. I believe he was destined to die at a particular hour that Isaiah spoke of, and that was 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, the last point where the great lamb sacrifice was held in the temple in the Passover celebration. The same time Jesus cried out, it is finished, the high priest was sacrificing the ultimate Passover lamb in the temple of the courtyard, temple courtyard in Jerusalem, same time. I don't think that's by happenstance. God's great lamb was sacrificed at the same time the blood was spilt in the temple because God was about his business. Don't have time, but Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, the great Hebrew scholar and Christian who wrote The Life of Messiah, great work on the life of Jesus, said that despite Satan's best efforts, God is the one who was in control and Christ's death occurred when it was ordained to occur. In order for the atonement to be made, Jesus had to die during this Passover and he had to die by crucifixion. Read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. If that were not the case, God could have allowed the death of the Messiah Jesus to happen at any other time or by any other means. But he ordained the feasts of Israel as a prophetic template in which he would accomplish his purposes towards Israel and mankind in general, end of quote. There's a lot there. But they had planned for Christ to die as the sacrificial lamb of God. It would happen as Passover dwindled on Friday afternoon. It would happen on a cross to fulfill all prophecy. And it would happen in public to fulfill all history. The enemies planned otherwise. The one with real authority controlled it all along. So yes... This might have been the most wicked hour in human history. It's certainly up there. And you might have felt a little little overwhelmed by the depth of wickedness and deception the devil is capable of. But don't you forget, our Lord is King of Kings. Our Lord controls even wicked people and the wicked one. And he is the victor in the end. And always. So what was the cross to you? What is it to you now? I mean, to Judas, it was a joke. To the priests, it didn't have, had no meaning that they felt they needed because they were super righteous themselves. What is it to you? I'll tell you, if you're his, it's a precious thing. Paul says... We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, (laughs) something they don't need. Folly to Gentiles, something they don't want. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 